So, uh, if you're new to Element, welcome to you. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, during the series on Pharisee University, they're only half sheets, so there's just questions on the back and note-taking things on the front with the verses. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live and Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions and some announcements, all that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me? to God's word. We'll get started. This is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live and walk in unity. Uh, people who love and honor you above all things so that we come together. Even though we may have different opinions on different things, the centrality of who you are bring us together as a people. Uh, who become one by how we love one another. Amen. Have a seat. So this is Pharisee University. This is week four. If you've got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 23, and then bookmark that, because we're going to start there, and we're going to end there, but we're going to go a bunch of places in between there as well. Uh, this is, like again, our frat house decor. Welcome to it. I don't know. Whatever. Okay. Uh, about two and a half years ago, I was reading this book by Larry Osborne called Accidental Pharisees. Gave me the idea for this series, kind of filed it away, so now we're kind of doing it. Uh, this is our series where if you want to be a good Pharisee, these are the things you do or don't do if you don't want to be a Pharisee. It all depends on what side you want to fall on. Matthew 13, verse 23, verses 13 and 14. I freaked you out for a minute there, right? Uh, it says this. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shed the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would who would enter to go in. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here is that they did not live up to what they taught other people to live. So they're, they're overly concerned with all these externals, and Jesus will say that they are neglecting what's called the weightier matters of the law. These are the simple truths about God and man. It's so much so that when Jesus, their own Messiah, shows up and he walks among them, they're so blinded by their observances of all these minute details that they completely miss him. And you have to understand, in a Pharisaic tradition, it no way sanctions hypocrisy. Yet, there can be no doubt that when Jesus lived and walked, the Pharisees were full of hypocrisies. And I keep coming back to tell you, all the Pharisees weren't bad. All of everything, all the Pharisees were not bad. They're not all described like those in Matthew chapter 23. We're just being like Pharisees and stereotyping and lumping them all in the same category. But the Gospels do contain some references to Pharisees who were very admirable. There's a guy named Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, he goes to Jesus, and he really wants to know what true life looks like, so Jesus explains it to him. Uh, on, in John chapter 7, he's, Nicodemus speaks out for justice on behalf of Jesus. At the fall, towards the end of John, when all the Followers of Jesus kind of run away. In John 19, Nicodemus stays and still stands up for him. But what we're trying to do, as I said, we're stereotyping, we're discussing all the negative connotations of Pharisees and how we should stay away from them, but we so easily fall into them. Today is one of the biggest ways people follow in the footsteps of the Pharisees, and this is when we emphasize what's called uniformity over unity. Now, uniformity is trying to make everybody look the same. This is like our culture today, right? Our culture doesn't really care what goes on as long as you act like you all think the same thing. It's, it's uniformity. All just make sure these things are okay. If you don't think this is 
okay, well, then you're a bigot and there's something wrong with you. That's our culture. But Christian culture has done this for a very long time. You had, you had guys, you got to have your hair parted in the middle, combed twice a day. Women, you got to be wearing whatever style Beth Moore's sporting this week. You know, you got you to vote the same. They hand out pamphlets on the way out the door to tell you how you're supposed to vote. Uh, you can dress the same. Guys are supposed to wear, you know, slacks and collared shirts. And women, you got to wear dresses that go past your knee. Uh, my wife and I actually went to a church once where she walked in and she had this, this dress that went to here and they asked her to go and change. It wasn't long enough, right? It's too short. That's, and so we're like, well, this is, we won't be back. <laughs> It was kind of crazy. You know, uh, they teach people you all got to eat the same. You got to eat like kosher, uh, alcohol is like devil juice, you know, things like that. Uniformity is very comfortable because it's all like we're in the same club. We all look the same. We all dress the same. We all talk the same. And when everybody's exactly like you, well, it's kind of easy to get along with. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, keep, stay there at Matthew, but flip over there. Uh, uh, Uniformity, you got to remember, is not what Jesus died for. Okay? Uh, he didn't come to break down the walls of Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, so we could all become homogenous, 2% milk, right, right in the middle. Uh, Larry Osborne says, he came to save us in our differences, not from them. God loves that we are all just a little bit different. Some of you are more different than others. That's, that, that's okay. But these differences are things that God delights in. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, the Apostle Paul talks about the church this way. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slave and free, and all were made to drink one spirit. What that is, is that is unity. Unity. Uh, Biblical unity, it's more like a family, how a family lives together. We are united by new birth in Christ, not by choice. Nothing can change that. When we're saved, we're family. It doesn't matter if we don't like each other. It doesn't matter if I'm like, how that guy sneak in? You know, it doesn't matter any of that because we're stuck with each other forever. We are united by Jesus, not by choice. Larry Osborne says, Biblical unity is solely rooted in our relationship with Jesus. It is not predicated on patterns or preferences. It's not about agreeing on every point of theology. It's all about Jesus. That's what it's about. Now, if you're a parent and you have more than one child, you know what this is like. Because your kids are family, but you cannot make them get along with each other as much as you would like to. This is a problem ever since Adam's fall in Genesis chapter 3. One brother killing the other. Why did one brother kill the other? Uniformity, religion, that's what it was about, the proper way to worship God. You're not worshiping God right, and God doesn't like me because you worship him better. I'll just kill you. That'll take care of it. No, God will really like me. (laughs) doesn't work that way. If you want to be a real Pharisee, you've got to get rid of any unity centered around the gospel and the person of Christ and simply focus on uniformity, getting rid of all distinctions. And the sad thing is, is that when we start to live like a Pharisee, we forget what the gospel of Jesus Christ was meant to do. It was meant to unify us together. So we got to sometimes take a hard look at our own lives and see where we're living that way. So I'm going to give you three rules to being a good Pharisee in uniformity. Number one is this. If you want to be a good Pharisee, fake it. Fake it. Okay? Christians are called to greater amounts of love and joy in our lives. And if we don't have those, we'll find ways to distinguish ourselves from other people who are not Christians. People who are religious do this all the time. If change doesn't happen on the inside, we just become more weird on the outside. That, that's what we do. Uh, you know, we have all these external 
changes. Like the Pharisees in the first century, okay? Most rabbinical writings from the first century, the Pharisees were talking about uh, circumcision, dietary laws, and the Sabbath. If you go back before the first century, no rabbinical writing focused on those as the main things to show that you loved and lived with God. None of those things, they said, were the heart of the law. What's the heart of the law? Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the heart of the law. So why did the Pharisees start to focus on these practices instead of the heart of God's teaching? Well, it involves their identity, who they thought they were. Now, people today, if you go to seminars and stuff and they talk about this kind of thing, they call these boundary markers, where groups become exclusive and separate from outsiders. I like to call these fences. We build fences, so we're in our little yard, and everybody else, those weirdos, they're in their yard, they can't come into my yard. These are highly visible, superficial practices like vocabulary or dress that distinguish us from other people. So, let's see how this works. It worked okay in first service, but they're a little older than you, so let's see if you guys get this as well. 1960s, in late 60s, you pull up to a traffic light, right? VW van pulls up next to you, smells like weed. That can still happen today, I know. Uh, painted psychedelics says, make love, not war on the side. Driven by a long-haired dude with granny glasses. What What's he? What is he? A hippie. Guys are on it. (laughs) 1980s, somebody pulls up to you at a light in a BMW, moose in their hair, eating bagels. What are they? Yuppie. Oh, you guys are so good. It's amazing. Okay, so today, young guy shows up in skinny jeans, trying his hardest to grow a beard. You can put like a nest of birds in, talking on their iPhone. What are they? Hipster. Hipster. Yeah. One person in first service is all hipster. He's like, a what? We're good, we're good. Everyone has their own thing that tells you who's in and who's out. Everybody does this. For the first century Pharisees, it was circumcision, and that is commitment right there. I mean, circumcision, wow, okay, diet laws, Sabbath keeping, that's it. Those are all fences. Who's in, who's out. They're visible, but they're highly superficial. Because if you can't be holy, you just be weird, push everyone outside the circle that doesn't match. One of these is not like the other. Oh, it's you. You're gone. Okay. Second thing, you want to be a good Pharisee, you've got to be what we call a watchdog. A watchdog. What that means is you make sure theological uniformity is a precursor to cooperating with anybody. You talk about your own little buzzwords and the things that you have. Like, I'll give you my buzzwords, the things I like. I like the word missional. I like the word gospel. I like the word John Calvin. I like the word reformed theology. I like those words. And what you have to do to be a watchdog is you listen to what people say. If they don't say the exact words in the right way, you jump on them, you point it out, you act offended. When anybody steps outside of your line, you expose it as widely as possible, and then you try and shut it down. You assume that everybody who isn't exactly on board with your theological vision is against you, and more importantly, against Jesus. Now, in the book, Osmer kind of points out that Jesus himself shuts down that line of thinking. Uh, In Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, John goes to Jesus, and he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now, last year we talked about this a little bit, and I told you that I think an axiom we can all live by is the less demons, the better. Like, there is no air in here. We got to do something about that, right? Get out of the house. We got to move. You know, just with the less demons, the better. Okay, so we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. It means he is not one of us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
It's the disciples. They got this team, and they're on the team, and that guy isn't on the team. They create boxes, who's inside, who's outside. They didn't know who this guy was, where he came from. They only knew he wasn't one of them. That's what they're saying. I mean, he's probably some guy that sat on the outskirts to multiple times that Jesus taught. He comes to the place of believing what Jesus says. How do we know this? Because he is not worshiping in, or he's not ministering in his own name. He's ministering in Jesus's name. It says that very distinctly. And that's a scary thing in that culture to minister in Jesus's name. I mean, it's unlike today where a lot of people throw Jesus on everything like ranch dressing or something, you know, but, but then that culture is a scary thing to do. And the disciples think there's no way possible this guy has the right credentials. He's not one of us. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't stop him. He essentially says, don't get in the way of what God is doing simply because I'm not doing it through you. And that mind blown, right? That should just blow your mind right there. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, the apostle Paul says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, the Apostle Paul points out that this group is preaching Jesus out of envy. He's trying to stir up trouble for him. They're clearly not on Paul's side. Their motives are not the greatest. And, but Paul sees the bigger picture. He's like, it's not about me. It's not about my feelings. I actually think this is written kind of sarcastic. Like, Paul thinks it's funny. Well, they're still talking about Jesus. <laughs> okay, you know, they think they're getting bit. This is great. Now, don't get me wrong. Envy is a horrible way to preach the gospel okay don't it's a horrible way to preach the gospel but sometimes our own attitudes focus that way more than it does on the kingdom of god we must be a people who focus first on the gospel and who jesus christ is above everything else or we become pharisees i mean you got to understand two things god uses people who don't have it all together you know this is people like you and people like me we do not have it all together and not of us does not mean not of him and you got to hear me what I'm saying here because I got a few emails from some of you over the last couple of weeks of the Ferris University and you keep picking one thing and not listening to everything that we're saying. I am not saying that there aren't things that we should be fighting for. Okay, there are things that we do fight for. Jesus constantly took on the Pharisees in direct and subtle ways. He calls them hypocrites to their face, not behind their back. He said hard things to them about what they teach people to do. I mean, assuming that that you think that telling someone they're going to hell is kind of harsh. I mean, Jesus did that to the Pharisees. Paul goes after a group called the Judaizers. They're teaching Gentiles, well, you need to be circumcised and follow the whole Testament law. And so Paul says these Judaizers should just go all the way and chop off their manhood altogether. They're so excited about circumcision, just take the whole thing. That's harsh. I mean, you'd be mad at me if I said that. See, I don't even say the words. I just kind of, you know, just kind of gloss over it. you got to understand that, that there are certain things to go to war over. There are. But in these cases, well, the others in the New Testament, when they did that, it was always contending for the gospel. The core of it was about salvation. Today, we like to make it about nuances of alcohol and no alcohol, or Democrat and Republican, or country music and rock and roll. None of the things that the apostles went to war over were about the fine print. The dispute was always about the right to be saved and what it meant to follow Jesus. That's what it was about. When Jesus goes after the religious leaders, they're trying to keep sinners out. Oh, they're not good enough. God doesn't love them. They've got to be better. Those are the people that Jesus came to save. That's what he's saying. It's a matter of eternity and salvation. That's always worth fighting over. 
I think most of our little disputes are not about matters of salvation or hell or things like that. They're about personal preferences. Like this, at Element, we believed in the Reformed tradition that God saves us. It's his act, his will, his calling. But you can be an Armenian and believe it's your choice. It's okay. God predestined you from the foundation of the world to be wrong. Number three. Number three, if you want to be a good Pharisee, refuse to set aside petty differences. Refuse to set aside petty differences. Just focus on those things. So what you do is you point out and focus on what makes someone else different than you. You don't focus on the fact they're made in the image of God just like you, that they've been given dignity, value, and worth from God just like you. You look at what they do and they say, you know, they've got to be just like you in order for God to love them. Uh, there's this college in the Deep South, I'm not throwing out any names, it's a Christian college, where jazz music on campus is grounds for expulsion. This rule was made in the early 20th century when jazz music was really big and it was really sinful. Today they're afraid to repeal it because they said it would make them seem like they're compromising their belief. Punk, heavy metal, even country music is okay on campus, right? <laughs> Same school. On Sundays, when tennis was really big, they barred any tennis. They'd lock all the tennis courts on Sunday. You know what's open on Sunday? The volleyball courts. Skimpy suits. Let's go. Those are open. Those are open. This is what happens when stupid uniformity laws get put in place can never be repealed. But when you look at what Jesus did and how he brought people together, Jesus chooses 12 disciples, and I'm sure he does them for a reason. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I'll show you two again. Number one, Simon the Zealot. Okay, Zealot explains his mindset. It sets him apart from Simon Peter so you know the two, they're two different guys. So a Zealot is a revolutionary. They're dedicated to overthrowing Rome. He would be called a freedom fighter by the Jews. He'd be called a terrorist by the Romans. And then you have Matthew the tax collector. He works for the Roman government. That's who he works for. He gathers money from Jews and gives it to the Jewish oppressors. Romans see him as sensible and compliant. Jews see him as a traitor. I mean, you can't find an odder couple than these two guys. They're natural enemies. We would, we would today, we would move them into an apartment together and make a half-hour sitcom out of them living together. That's what we would do with those guys. And yet, Jesus, when he calls them to follow him, they set aside all their differences, and they start to follow him. They focus on him as the center. I mean, can you imagine what kind of impression that would leave on people who came to hear and listen to you, and they see this zealot and this tax collector actually following him and loving Jesus? I mean, it's like Jesus is a miracle worker. Well, heck yeah, Jesus was a miracle worker. I mean, I think walking on the water was hard. Imagine those two guys leaving a room and one of them not beat up or dead. I mean, I am sure they had intense, heated discussions, but they were always centered around Jesus. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Romans had all these distinctions, and, and they're built around status and citizenship and uncrossable boundaries. Then you have all those same people who end up loving and worshiping and following Jesus, and they're inside of one church. All of those people where a slave could be an elder and actually be over their master in a church. It was amazing what was happening because of Jesus. It gives great weight to the fact that Jesus really was who he said he was. God in the flesh, risen from the grave. Even today, some people think they are better because of skin color or class or income or position. But all we have is nothing. All distinctions are gone in the cross. Now, some people kind of get this confused a little bit. Today, some feminist theologians and liberal theologians go so far as to say, well, God did away with male and female at the cross. That's not what Paul is saying. I'm like, ladies, if you become a follower of Jesus, are you still female? Yes, yes. I, 
I, women are, I married a woman, okay? And, and I'm so glad because she's soft and cuddly and I love holding on to her. Yes. Men, you become a follower of Jesus. Are you still male? Thank God, right? Right? You can go pee in the backyard if you want to. It's, it's wonderful being a guy. You don't wake up the next morning after becoming a, becoming a follower of Jesus and like, oh, my penis fell off. You, you don't have, this is why I told first service I was not going to say this service. And it just comes out again. So, you don't wake up after following Jesus with androgynous plumbing. You don't. I mean, seriously, th- this is the point. You know, if you're white, you're white. You're black, you're black. You're brown, you're brown. You're yellow, you're blue, you're blue. You're green, you're green. We come to Jesus and we're still the same color, but we come to Jesus and we're unified because we're unified around Him. He takes away cultural distinctions, the uniformity, not creation distinctions. He makes us one. In the church today, there's all kinds of emphasis on increasing racial diversity, and that's a good thing. I think it's very needed, but there's more to that than truly than a truly welcoming church and just having racial and social and economic diversity. I mean, we've got to work through our passion opinions with one another. We have to be able to work through the realms of politics and theology and ministry priorities. This is why gospel communities are so important to us. We always want you guys together in these. And if you have never left your gospel community just like frustrated and like, oh, those people drive me nuts. You're not really in gospel community. You walked out and said, I am never talking to those people again. I mean, so, some people in my gospel community are here. I'm really sorry. It's you. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> No, but, but sometimes you have those hard discussions because you have differing opinions. There are different things in your life, but you come together because you're centered on the person of Christ. That's what brings us together. I think today, the world is still watching the church to see if modern-day Pharisees and, and modern-day tax collectors and modern-day zealots are going to be able to come together around Christ first, above everything else. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, how do you do that? Part of that is learning how to bear with each other. Paul says in Colossians 3, 12 and 13, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I'm not talking about overlooking heresy or embracing a different gospel or ignoring sin. I'm talking about to agree to disagree on certain matters that we may feel passionate about but are not central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, we can have all kinds of things that that we are passionate about, but Jesus is center. And it's more than just the little stuff. It's more than having a friend who voted for Obama or Romney. It's about offering the same grace and mercy and love to others that Jesus has first offered to you. Jesus speaks a message, and what it does is it speaks to people's souls. It's not conforming to religious culture. It's about being transformed into new creatures. And when Jesus is asked to sum up the entire Old Testament law, he says, love God, love people. How do you tell the children of God? Do they love God and do they love people? 1 John 4, 7, and 8, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. doesn't say love is God, okay? It says God is love. It's one of his defining characteristics. When Jesus and the Pharisee clashed, it's, it's, it's not just disagreement over the law. He's threatening their understanding of themselves. that Oh, you're better than everybody. That's what he's threatening. You're not better than everybody's in the same boat. Jesus focused on people's centers. This is why he said the Pharisees, who had built all these really nice fences, and they thought they were all on the inside, they're actually outside the fences. And the prostitutes and tax collectors are entering ahead of them. 
So, I'm going to bring this to a close. I'm going to give you six good questions to ask yourself. They're, they're in the sermon notes. Uh, these are to see if you're a Pharisee or not. Uh, if you put uniformity above unity. Uh, these come out of a book called The Life You've Always Wanted. It's about spiritual disciplines. And back to Matthew chapter 23. First question is this. Am I spiritually authentic? Am I spiritually authentic? Uh, Matthew 23, 25, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Inauthenticity involves a preoccupation with appearing spiritual. Oh, I'm going to put on a face. I'm not actually going to be real with anybody. So you use words and phrases and t-shirts and bumper stickers that try to show your spirituality rather than actually living out a life that follows Jesus. Second thing, am I becoming judgmental, exclusive, or proud? Judgmental, exclusive, or proud? Oh, not me. You already failed one of those right there. Okay, Matthew 23, verse 6. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Is pride a problem for anyone in here? Every single one of us should raise our hand because in one way or another, we do all have pride problems. When we start to take Jesus seriously, we have to be careful not to get prideful, to think we're doing so much better than everybody else. Anybody ever watch The Simpsons? Bring that up in a Sunday morning service. Here we go. Okay, so... Simpsons, they got this neighbor, his name is Flanders, and Flanders is the Christian, okay? Nut job, okay? One time, uh, Flanders uh, disappears for like a week, and he comes home, and Homer Simpson says, you know, where'd you go? No, you know, where'd you go? And he says, well, we went away to a Christian camp. We're learning how to be more judgmental. (laughs) That's how the world views Christians. Because instead of centering ourselves on the love of Christ, we bicker and argue with one another rather than focusing on what the centrality of the gospel is. I sometimes wonder, why is that camp so well attended by so many Christians? Do you rate other people you come into conflict with, like you're the judge and they're the contestants? Question number three, am I becoming more approachable or less? More approachable or less? Matthew 23, verse 7, they'd love to be greeted in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. In Jesus' time, people with leprosy and prostitutes and tax collectors, they run away from the Pharisees. They know how the Pharisees see them. The only one who ever touched them was Jesus. And the Pharisees end up being part of the group that kill him. Jesus was God, and he was approachable. His commitment to living the way that God calls us all to have drew people to him, not pushed them away. See, true Christianity, true spirituality is that way. Question number four, am I growing weary of pursuing spiritual growth? Weary of pursuing spiritual growth. Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. Righteousness on your own is always exhausting. Always exhausting. Stephen Mosley wrote this. Conventional religious goodness manages to be both intimidating and unchallenging at the same time. Why? Because it's all about the fences. you got like 58 rules of what you can do on Sunday or not do on Sunday or do on Saturday, not do on Saturday. How are you supposed to dress and, and comb your hair and do all those things. They're all fences, but it's completely unchallenging because if you devote your life to rules, you will never live in the love and the grace and the hope of Jesus. God has joy for you to live in. Question number five, do I believe what I say I believe? Do I believe what I say I believe? Out of the NIV, uh, John chapter 5, verse 37 to 40, you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You ever heard the saying, do as I say, not as I do? I'm growing up, okay? Uh, like we all do, like, it's not that hard, I just didn't die, right, okay, so I grew up, uh, and, and when I was like five years old, we had this fish tank in, in our house, and, and one time it had all this gunk in it, and my mom walks up, and she goes, what's all that 
stuff in the fish tank. I'm five years old. I'm like, what stuff, right? Smack. Don't cuss. I'm like, what did I do? I I don't even know what stuff was. I'm like, you know, what? Uh, there's only two words I could get wrong there, and, and apparently it must have been this one, right? Do, do you really believe what you say you believe? Do you really believe those things? Like, like Jesus says, it is good to serve. He came to serve, we should serve. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Well, we did like this Serve Santa Maria Day a few weeks ago. Did you go and volunteer for that? I mean, there's, there's like snacks that we do in the back. You ever sign up to bring snacks? You ever sign up to maybe help in children's because they're always needing workers and children? You guys are making lots of babies, and that's good. Okay, I think it's great. Have more, but they need some help back there. But that's not all that serving is. Serving is not just inside a church. Are you involved in the gospel community? Does your gospel community serve one another? Does your gospel community serve other people? Who is the last person you had over for dinner just so you could serve them, just so you could love on them? How is your life living a life of service that Jesus calls us all to? I mean, is Jesus right? A lot of people say, oh yeah, Jesus is totally right. Then why don't we believe what he says? Number six, am I measuring my life in superficial ways? I measure my life in superficial ways. Matthew 23, verse 24, he says, you blind guides, straining out a gnat but swallowing a camel. So if I asked you, how's your spiritual life going? What would be the determining factors of how you figure that out? What would you do? Well, a lot of people think of activities, quiet time, devotional, prayer, Bible study. Like if you prayed that day and read your Bible, well, I'm doing good. So prayer and Bible study becomes the focus. You get God's approval for the day. Uh, I know somebody who, it's like journal entries. They had like 340 journal entries last year, and they're doing really, as if that's the point of life. I mean, not that that's bad. Those aren't bad things. But if you asked Paul or John, the apostles, not the Beatles, right? You know, if you asked them about their spiritual life, their question would be, am I growing in love for God and love for people? See, the issue is what kind of people we are becoming. Who are we becoming? Reading the Bible and prayer, they're very important. Not because we prove how spiritual we are, but because God uses those things to lead us into life. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's the word for sins, made us alive together with Christ. God did the work in us first. Jesus is not trying to make us all the same. He's trying to make us one. That is Paul's point in Galatians when he says there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You're all one. How are you all one? In Christ Jesus. Jesus is trying to unify us as a people. All of our differences, they help us. They help us. Poor, rich, black, brown, white, yellow, educated, uneducated. It's good to have all in Christ. It shows the goodness of God. Just like our nationalities don't change when you become a believer. Like, if you're Asian, you're still Asian. I'm I'm Scottish and and Irish kind of mixed together. So all it means is I'm moody and I burn easily. That's all it means, right? But in the book of Revelation, it tells you all nations are gathered around his throne. All nations. He doesn't, you know, just, just make them a, a mixture of one color right in the middle. All nations all are around his throne. We are sent on a mission to make disciples who make disciples in the world, not make them all the same. We are to help people love Jesus because that's how we become one. That's how we live in unity. I mean, the heart cry of our culture is unity, but it's not. It's uniformity. That's what they want. The cry of the gospel is unity. And I will tell you that if you live for Jesus, you will begin to live in unity. Or you can simply be a Pharisee and live for uniformity. But our hope is that you become a people who begin to live in true and real unity. That you understand what that looks like. 
that, yes, you can disagree with somebody about certain beliefs that they hold, things that are not central to the gospel, and yet come together and worship Jesus together. It is good to have all these opinions. Uh, The book of Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron. We are there to sharpen one another. How do we do that? It's not by always agreeing on the exact same thing. It's by sharpening one another, by having these different things that we can talk through and work through. When we center on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is Jesus first above all things. And that is what will bring us together. And that's what we're supposed to live. Uh, This is why we go to communion every week. Communion is where you lay down all of those uniformity things in your life. You just lay them at the foot of Jesus. All the things you've been focusing on that have not been him. And then you take communion and you remember that this is God's work in you. That is what Jesus has done and continues to do. So you break that cracker like his body was broken for you. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds you of his blood that was shed for you and me. So we get to become this one people unified, worshiping and loving him. The band's going to come up. So do we invite you, as I said, to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer... I mean, maybe you focused in your life more on uniformity than unity. They would love to pray with you about that. If you don't even know who Jesus is, they'd really love to talk to you about that. I mean, there's no better day to surrender and live and love Jesus than today. So we'd invite you guys to do that as well. I don't know why you always stick it way back there. Yeah, because I forget Then you know, not all the announcements. You'd be standing like on your feet and your feet are so big. Pharisee. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm saying. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, there's offering boxes on the side of all in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is going to be part of our worship. And so you have that opportunity. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. God does things in our hearts, and we want to give because we want to see the ministry of what God does through Element grow. Uh, there's food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat. And like I told last service, if you're talking to somebody and you're about to say something really stupid, just shove something in your mouth. Stops it right there. Would it be even would it be even more amazing if you met some people and you maybe invited somebody out to dinner or lunch this week or invited more importantly maybe invited them over to your house for dinner. Maybe find a way just to serve somebody else. Find a way to give of yourself to someone else. Because Jesus calls us to be people of service and ministry. He is good. I mean, what you see in the in the gospels that Jesus came to serve his people. It's not because you're so wonderful that God's like, oh, I gotta go serve them. It's because he wants to show us what it means to truly live in the grace and the goodness of the gospel. So, we invite you to live, live the goodness of who he is in all that you do. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who learn to find our satisfaction in you and what you have done. That our hearts would be exposed, not just before you, but before our own eyes, so that we can see where we are placing uniformity above unity. We ask that you would move us in ways that our hearts are convicted when we put stupid, superficial things above the call of the gospel. That we would honor you by how we love, by how we give, by how we serve that we truly would believe the things that you have said. That our longing would be for you in all things. Father, we thank you for loving us the way that you do. Because without that love, we'd be completely lost. Always 
always trying to make it about uniformity and not unity. So teach us to understand what you have saved us out of, what you have baptized us by your Spirit into, that we are family, and that the world would know that you are great and you are God because you have saved lost and broken people. Teach us to find all of our satisfaction in you. Amen.